It's Amber Bradley, your host for the unscripted side of LP. It's Talk LP Podcast time. It's Talk LP Podcast time, everyone's favorite time of the week. I'm Amber Bradley. Thanks for joining us on Talk LP. Here with special guest Ryan Long, head of global intelligence and executive protection for McDonald's. That's probably one of the coolest titles ever. Don't you think so? Thanks, Amber. I, I just made it up on, off the cuff. So <laughs> look, okay, seriously, though, that is like a super cool title, which made me be like, okay. So after Ryan was so generous and with his time and, and doing some webinars for RLPSA, which is how we met, I was like, okay, we got to get you in the talk LP hot seat just to explore this title and what you do a little bit more because man, I wanted to have the open forum, you know, where we could just talk about anything. So tell us in the audience kind of what this, what do you do for McDonald's? And I also want you to talk about your background because it's also super cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to. And thanks for having me. So in terms of what I do for McDonald's, it's a couple of things. I mean, on the intelligence side, it's really about providing decision-making support in the form of research and analysis and insights around risks and opportunities and, you know, things that could impact our company and our brand, whether it's our people, our operations, um, some brand and reputation stuff. And as everyone can probably imagine over the last year plus, there's been no shortage of um, sort of fun challenges to deal with. And then on the executive protection side, we really provide a, a broad range of of different services to our senior leadership team, um, whether it's meeting and event support, travel and logistics planning. Of course, we look at various forms of risk that could impact them, whether it's you know things to do with personal security or something maybe in the digital space, but it's a, it's a broad, I'd say variety of, of products and services. And then in terms of my background and, and sort of how I landed here, it's, it's really just the military. I mean, prior to McDonald's, I grew up as a military intelligence officer in the army. I'm still actually in today, believe it or not, I, I'm still uh, serving the army reserves, which I absolutely love because it allows me to keep sort of one foot in the public sector still, which is important to me. And so over the years, it's hard to say this, I think I've been an Intel professional for 18 years now. And so, I mean, I've served in a variety of different um, capacities from analysts up to managing teams and leading teams and, and building functions. And um, yeah, here we are <laughs> today. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, I think that, you know, we've done a lot of interviews with loss prevention executives and, you know, you have a, such a different background, right? I mean, it's it seems similar, but it's probably nuanced differently, right? I mean, when you're talking about intelligence and an analyst. I mean, so tell us like, are you a data guy? Like, are you, you're the data guy or you're the guy with the thing with this coding in the thing and the lapel that's the thing and the black suit with the sunglasses. Like, are you both like, I'm outing your secret identity I might be, but tell us like, seriously, I think it's cool when you think about global intelligence. I mean, it's yeah. data. Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you said that. I like the way that you frame that because I wanna, let me start by just pointing something off. 
as boring as it might sound, I would lean more towards the data side than the other side, because, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do and a number of sort of peers and colleagues, I think, in the industry are trying to do is really sort of demystify this function. And on the surface, it might sound kind of fun or neat to like, you know, have this um, sort of aura around the job. But in the end, it, it actually, I think, hurts the function and, and it can create some misconceptions, if you will. And as a result, it's really hard then to, to serve the business and to serve our clients and customers within the business. So data is certainly important. I mean, that's one source of information that we can look on, look upon to draw insights. Um, also just qualitative research, if you will, would be another sort of form of information. Of course, there's so much publicly available information these days. You know, there's, there's no shortage of information sources that you can look at. But at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to look at these different sources of information, whether it is data, it might be something that's a little bit more qualitative. And we're trying to find out what's relevant to our organization, make sense of it in a way that, you know, people in the company understand and put it in a context that the business can use. So how can I make a decision based on this? You know, otherwise, if, if, if you don't do that, if an analyst doesn't do that, there's so much noise out there, as you know, we're just drowning in information. Yeah. So if we, don't, if we don't find out what's relevant to the business, make sense of it and put it in a context that's actionable for the business, then we're just wasting everyone's time. So that's, that's kind of the approach that we take. But, but you're right. I mean, data does and can play a central role in that. So if I'm listening out there, I want to like open up your brain and be like, what exactly are you talking about? Right. So, so when I wrote my thesis in graduate school, I was like way far away from that quantitative data stuff. I don't, don't I'm not a numbers girl, but the qualitative stuff, I'm like, okay, I can hear a story and antidote, you know, that kind of thing. So Tell us when you're talking about the qualitative side of what you analyze as the, the head of global intelligence for what you can say, I know you're not giving away all the secrets, but like for the audience, like what are some examples on the qualitative side that could help them? Cause I, I think if you're sitting there, you gotta be like, Oh my God, the social media is just one thing. It's like a sea of information and it would yeah. be so easy to get overwhelmed. So we're going to break it down just for a bit, right? So on the qualitative side, like what, what is that for you? Yeah, so let's, let's say that we're trying to figure out, um, I'm trying to think of an example. One of the things we, we wanna do, no one has unlimited resources, right? So if we were trying to figure out how are we gonna best utilize our resources, let's say from a corporate security perspective around the US, and I'll use the US as an example because you know, as everyone I think probably knows, we've been just racked by this civil and political unrest for the last year plus. And so, you know, you can certainly take a data-driven approach and just sort of look and see, okay, where were the highest number of protests? Where were the most number of events, et cetera? And then we're gonna apply our security resources to those locations. But I think on the qualitative side, really just trying to understand you know, what are some of the conditions in a particular city that might be, that might serve as the root cause for some of the civil unrest? Um, so just thinking about things that could be driving this unrest and, and, and sort of reading about them. So, 
um, you know, as an example, there's something called sentiment analysis. So if you were to take a police shooting, um, for example, which has been unfortunately, which has happened a number of different times over the past, you know, year and a half or so, you know, what what's being said about that? What is sort of the voice and the sentiment around that? You know, how are people reacting to that? How are they feeling about it? And I know that sounds like touchy-feely stuff, but it's important not just to look at hard numbers. You really want to get a sense of the sort of tone and the attitude, if you will, around certain events like that. Because does that help you, the sentiment analysis, does that then help you predict what could happen, right? Because it's not like all of a sudden, and I think some instances it might be all of a sudden a, a instance or an event that happens, but is it like a wave, you know, you see it coming in? Is that kind of how you're predicting it? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it's a it's a chance to just get a pulse on the area or the community, if you will. And and you do get a sense of whether or not might something might be forthcoming. And so just as an example, if we only took a data-driven approach, you know, we might say right off the bat that a place like New Orleans or St. Louis or I mean, Chicago, which is where I live, which has had its fair share of, of crime problems, obviously, you know, you might say, well, it's a no brainer just based on the data. But then you you take a place like Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is not far from me, um, you know, just over the border in Wisconsin. And there's no way you could have taken a data driven approach to understand what was going to happen there, um, you know, earlier this summer or last summer, I've almost lost track of time. But if you can get a feel for what's being said, how people are feeling, so to speak, and the way that they express that um, online, then yeah, you, I think you can do a better job of predicting what might be coming. And using that, you know, thought process, knowing that you said, you know, not everybody has unlimited resources. And I'm sure even if you had even more resources, you, you'd be able to put them to work doing something. But um, so if you think about that, that seems like it would be a lot of work, right? Where you're like, oh my gosh, I got to like understand and research the sentiment and know kind of geographically what's going on. How do people do that? Like in, in our profession with a limited staff and, and of course these days wanting more from less, right? Um, yeah. How do people do that realistically? Yeah. That's it's a great question, and it's I think such a challenge that we're all facing these days. I come back to the mantra of just focus on what matters most, and you really have to become fairly ruthless almost in prioritizing. And it's you know you don't have to do that in the dark. Generally, you want to converse with your key stakeholders and really get a sense of what matters most to the organization and where should we prioritize. And, and just go from there and really just focus on those top two or three or four priorities. What's interesting is that I think if we were all sitting around together and, and had a whiteboard and we tried to sketch out the top 10 to 15 sort of core roles and responsibilities or let's say products and services that we wanted to deliver, I'm sure we could come up with a huge laundry list, but it really is just being thoughtful and deliberate and disciplined about prioritizing what's most important to the organization. And you learn that by conversing with your key stakeholders. 
And the good news is, is that if you have to sort of stop something or put something on the shelf for, for a minute, you know, and you really just focus on those things that matter most and deliver on them and do a great job, you're going to build up this credibility bank, um, so to speak. So when the time does come and the space does open where you can do a little bit more or expand, you know, you're going to have, I think, an opportunity to do those other things that you wanted to do. But everybody listening, just, just remember to focus on what matters most. And I think deliver on that, um, especially if you don't have a lot of resources, because I think that's going to open up some doors for you later. Yeah. So I guess the real life example, like if you're, if you're in the middle of a rollout of security technology, say for what you have assessed as some pretty dangerous locations, maybe high crime, whatever, did the report and you're like, okay, I'm implementing a certain security protocol in these stores. Yeah. But then you start to either analyze, hear about whatever, kind of the growing wave or something happens like, you know, uh, all of these other examples from social unrest in 2020, then you put this security rollout on the shelf and then you focus on keeping people safe in the certain city or whatever, right? I mean, is that yeah. kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great analogy or a great example. And, you know, it can, it can be hard, but we just, these days, I mean, I think you said it really well. I mean, everyone expects more with less. You know, those are the conditions that we're working with. So another key takeaway from that for, I think, a lesson learned for all of us is we just have to be agile. You know, we have to be agile and nimble and we have to be able to pivot. Um, but again, I, you know, I, I tell our team this all the time. There's things that we're working on that we're really passionate about that we have to sort of put on the shelf. But no, don't don't give up. I mean, we can come back to it. It's just about prioritization. That's all, and just delivering on on what those priorities are. So, yeah, and even if like something like a crisis doesn't happen, right? I mean, and let's just say you're working in a multitasked, you know, way, right? Where you're like, okay. I'm doing all of these things, but I'm also already always prepared for a crisis, right? Yeah. Is that where the planning and the preparation to where you as a professional in global intelligence can pick things up and put things down as needed, right? When you're talking about prioritization. So it's really like learning how to multitask always with a good solid prep book, right? If you don't have 30 people that you can delegate to. Yeah, I love that. That's, that's a great point. And so that highlights something that's really important that, which is really the idea of scenario planning. I think scenario planning, it breeds resilience. And especially if, if you are a small team or maybe even a solo practitioner um, and you have limited resources, just thinking about those futures, what are those potential things that could happen and um, you know, just sort of thinking through those things and what you're going to do, and and being prepared for 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 those different scenarios, it's just it's just going to make life a lot easier if something does happen and you do have to pivot because or put something you know to the side because you just spent time thinking through all those things, and you know you might have a plan ready to where like okay if we have to 
you know, we're doing five things right now, but if something happens and we need to only focus on two, what's that gonna look like? So that planning and preparation is critical, like you talked about, and, and scenario planning, I think is a fantastic tool for everyone to help with that. You know, it's weird, like, you know, I've, I put on a lot of events, right? And you think about tabletop stuff, you know, where, and I'll tell you what's funny is no one wants to do it. You know what I mean? Is it like that internally, even, you know, in big corporations too, because people don't want to be put on the spot or work through the scenario or whatever. Right. And you would think, and in your experience, it seems, and we've all experienced it with the pandemic because it's like, who would have thought this, you know? So (laughs) isn't that the hardest thing? Number one, getting people bought into the scenario planning that's important. And number two, and number two, like uh, making sure that everybody's got on board with that, right? That they're okay. Yeah, scenario planning is important, and then you know, understanding or forecasting what could possibly be next. I mean, a pandemic. Come <laughs> on, how do we know what's next? I need to know so I can get my stock portfolio up to date. You know, what do you think yeah. about that? Yeah, it's it's a huge challenge everywhere. There's no doubt. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. So um, I think you have to have somebody that has that really sort of takes the lead and and is a trusted voice and somebody, you know, that that has that sort of influence, if you will, to bring everybody together and and sort of talk through those things. But yeah, I mean, there's just no doubt that it's hard. It's it's hard to do that and. You really just have to, I think, build a business case and, and try to articulate why this is really important and how it could pay off. And hopefully when something does happen to an organization, put the pandemic aside, but it might be another type of crisis. There's some sort of after action review and discussion around lessons learned. And from that, you know, should come like, I think scenario planning is always part of those lessons learned. And and, and then just thinking about how you operationalize that. But it is really difficult. And I think it's because we're all conditioned these days to uh, sort of live under this thing, the urgency of the immediate. We're moving so quickly. Things are happening so fast these days that it's just the urgency of the immediate or the tyranny of the immediate. And we really have to make it a point to sort of sit back sometimes and take a a breath and think about the long term and what could happen and not just deal with today which we're so used to doing yeah it's um that's one of the things that's just that's you you sit around and think okay what could possibly happen next i mean we were doing that right during the pandemic and the lockdown you're thinking how do we plan and it's like man when you're in something it's so hard to think about because your, your brain is the, the stress and everything like that. Like, I think your points are, are perfectly said that, that, that is, it's a tough situation um, when you're in it. So if you don't have the backup of all of this planning, you're pretty much screwed. Yeah. And I mean, Amber, just another plug for scenario planning and just, just the idea of developing resilience in general. I mean, you know, I, the idea that we can predict what's going to happen Uh, You and I may have discussed this before, but the idea that we can predict what's going to happen is becoming harder than ever, which sounds contradictory because we do have more information at our fingertips than ever, but we're just drowning in it. And 
things are really complex and uncertain. And there's all these other factors that just make this prediction piece really, really difficult. So having said that, I mean, as an intelligence leader and having an intelligence function, one of the things that I try to really articulate to our key stakeholders, we're not gonna catch everything. We're not gonna be able to predict everything. So we have to have this resilience mindset. We have to invest in things like thinking about what the future looks like and the scenario planning, because we're gonna be so much, so much better off if we do that. So turning to the executive protection side, because I think that's super cool. I mean, you think about, I don't know. I don't know why. I think part of it, everybody trips into this movie scenario, right? Where you're like protecting uh, your executives abroad and even at home. And why people have such a beef with McDonald's, excuse the pun. I have no idea, right? I mean, like, do you ever just want to say, can y'all just pick somebody else for a little bit? You don't have to answer that. I'm just saying, like, it's crazy. Um, But thinking about that, I mean, clearly you have... uh, a very visible brand that has people with very strong feelings about what you're doing on a global scale. So, you know, if if some of our audience out there has that under their purview, right, of the executive protection piece, what are a few things that you're like, okay, that you could share, right, that are super important? I mean, I if it was me, not knowing anything about this, I would go to all my executives and say, no Facebook, no Instagram, don't tweet where you're at. You know, I don't know. I mean, you think about those, you're like, yeah, okay. You know, duh, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, um, I just want to show you how good I was at the executive protection thing (laughs) right out of the bat. But no, seriously, I think that's really cool. I mean, I don't know. What can you share with us about that piece of it? Yeah, so I think for anyone listening, there's a couple of things that stand out like right off the bat. And so one is, it's a, it's a customer-driven service, just like so much else of what we do. And because of that, I, you know, I learned something a while ago from actually a leader within McDonald's, which is this mantra of meeting people where they are. And I think that's really appropriate in this case because, you know, a lot of the times these, these folks are not used to this. It's a, it's a, it might be a new function. It can be a little bit jarring, I think, in some cases, especially if you're, let's say, promoted up you know, to, to be a member of the C-suite. And so just being sort of empathetic, having their perspective around what works and what doesn't, because a lot of times what will happen in, in the, the EP industry is um, it, it, we're dealing with somebody's health and safety. So you want to say, as the expert, you want to come in and say, we have to do A, B, C, D, and E when really you need to have their perspective in mind and sort of meet them where they are in terms of what they're comfortable with. And there's, uh, it's really sort of a a compromise, if you will. And I don't even view it that way. I just view it as being sort of customer driven. And if you're not customer driven, if you don't have that mindset of meeting them where they are, then it's, it might just fail right off the bat. So that's one thing for everyone to consider. The other thing, and I think this is, applies to everything that we do, regardless of whether or not it's EP or loss prevention or corporate security, but it's just building the right team, you know, finding the right team. And and within that, I really look for people with the right identity. And what I mean by that is we're really trying to find people that think of themselves and identify as business professionals first, who just happen to have this 
area of expertise in protective operations or risk management. And when you have that sort of mindset, it really just sort of, um, you're just welcomed in, you know, to the business. People see you as a business leader first. Um, it, it creates transparency. It creates, I think, willingness for collaboration. And um, yeah, it just allows us to better connect with our executives and the people that we're serving. If, you know, we're, we can speak to the business, we understand the business and what's going on. And as a result, that's why we're gonna implement this specific protection package, just as an example. But, um, and then the, the second part of building, you know, building the right team, I think is just, we talk about the word diversity all the time, of course, and that can mean so many different things within that. But I think just having different life experiences, different backgrounds, you know, people who will ask different questions, who view different scenarios, in a different way, let's say, is just really important because that's going to allow us to have this sort of holistic, I, I guess, risk management mindset, if you will. So those those are just a couple of things that stand out. Yeah, it's a great point on diversity too, because you know I think a lot of people think it's just a throwaway term, yeah. like oh sure, yeah, lots of perspectives, whatever. But yeah. I think what 2020 has taught us and a lot of people to understand is it is truly a competitive advantage, you know, cause you're getting, I don't think people who have a closed mind of like, oh, okay, whatever. Right. And that's just a fluffy conversation. When you actually look at it, it's actually a competitive advantage to have all of these perspectives. All right. Let me ask you one last question. So okay. when you um, did this presentation for all PSA, it was about, you know, talking about predicting social unrest and how you do that. And it was awesome. And, and I got some feedback, which was interesting because they're like, you know, you had to go through political leanings, right? Yeah. And yeah. some people before you were finished were like, I knew it, it's the liberals. And then some people <laughs> were like, I knew it, it's the conservative Republicans inciting all of this, which is funny because you want to you know, they didn't let you finish right to where you were, you were giving all the perspectives because in your role, talk about that a little bit in the fact that you have to take your own personal perspectives out completely out of it because you had given this presentation that were all sides of the political spectrum, because that's not what you were presenting on. You're presenting how to keep your people safe. Right. Yeah. And so you had to give everything. So talk just a little bit about, you know, knowing your own personal bias to take it out of what you have to do as a risk and loss prevention, global intelligence, you know, fits all those categories, um, perspective there. Yeah. Well, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that happened. I actually, before I gave that presentation, I was thinking about a way to frame it so that I just sort of acknowledge that, you know, everybody try to put whatever your leanings are, try to put them aside. And it's another reason why within that presentation, I really took a data-driven approach because in my opinion, I mean, the numbers don't lie. You know, it came from a very credible source and it broke down, you know, what all the various types of protests were and, and sort of where they were rooted in it. And it was both sides of the aisle. So that's that's really interesting to hear, but you know, you hit it on the head in terms of bias. I mean, for somebody in my position, and I think 
and I'm just saying this in general, in terms of under, let's say a corporate security umbrella, just to generalize right now, regardless of what area of expertise we have, whether it's loss prevention or risk intelligence or physical security, I mean, we, we are protecting um, our people, we're protecting our assets, we're protecting our brand and reputation, but we're also supporting decision-making around things like risk and opportunity. And so we just really have to be agnostic. I mean, we have to take those personal feelings and we, yeah, we just have to take those out of it because if so let, not, me, let me interrupt you really quick. So to yeah. do that though, don't you, a lot, how do people do that? Right. Cause I, I mean, I'm hard headed sometimes. Right. And then a lot of times I will watch the opposite of what I lean, right. Yeah. To educate myself. And then, then I realized I'm being snowed by all of it. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. is that how people do that? Expose yourself to things you disagree with because it helps. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I, I love that. I mean, these days it's easy to find ourselves living in our own little echo chambers. I mean, I, I find myself doing it when I go to look at news or to read something about whatever, you know? So Number one, I think that's a great point. We do have to force ourselves to get out of our comfort zone and start exposing ourselves to things that, you know, we we might feel uncomfortable with or or something where we we don't think that way. But the other thing that's really helpful for me personally, and this goes back to building diverse teams, which is even though I'm an Intel professional and I've been sort of formally trained on bias and how to remove bias, of course, I still have my own, right? And so when you have a diverse team, though, who have different life experiences, different perspectives, they can serve as that check and balance system. And so, you know, we will talk through some of these things. and I will get a perspective from somebody who sees things differently than I do, and who has a different background and et cetera, et cetera. And so I think, I just think that's can what hold you, uh, hold you accountable in terms of trying to eliminate those biases is is just having a diverse team that can really sort of provide that other perspective that's awesome all right some some huge takeaways here hopefully you'll come back and sit in the talk lp hot, hot seat we appreciate it ryan um thank you so much for being a guest of talk lp podcast yeah thank you it's my pleasure i look forward to talking to you again and, and take care everyone all right. You can follow us at Let's Talk LP. Don't forget to download the Talk LP news app. It is killer. All right. Thanks for watching, guys. We'll talk at you soon.